Now, if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There are lots of different ways to preach a sermon. I mean, really, when you get right down to it, there's sort of only one way. You get up in front of a group of people and tell them about the good news of God and Jesus Christ. But there are many different methods that people use to preach. Some people use a PowerPoint with lots of quotations and illustrations. Some people preach completely without notes. Some people preach for an hour or more at a time. And some people, the privileged few who are cool enough to pull it off, some people preach with just a Bible, a bottle of water, and a stool. (laughs) I was once invited to preach on a stage where they provided me with a stool. I had to move it like way out of my peripheral vision because... I couldn't even look at it, much less sit down on it. Other than a stool, though, I've tried many different ways of preaching. Notes, no notes, a manuscript, on a few occasions even a PowerPoint, investments in a blazer, even in jeans. But there's one thing I've never done, not once. I've never asked a question in a sermon that wasn't rhetorical. I've never wanted an answer to come from the congregation. But that's exactly what Joshua does in this sermon that we're reading from in Joshua chapter 24 this morning. He does Q&A. He invites responses from the people. Can you imagine? I mean, I do want you to respond, but keep it in your hearts, please. Maybe an amen here or there. That would be okay. Respond by affirming your faith in the creed after the sermon or by re-engaging the spirit by feasting on the body and blood of Christ. But if I ask you a question in the sermon, just wait a second and I'll answer it. But Joshua, in this sermon to the crowd gathered at Shechem, asks his congregation a question and he expects an answer. Now, therefore, revere the Lord. He says, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day. We love this choosing language. It appeals to us, doesn't it? It makes us feel free. It appeals to our inner Patrick Henrys and William Wallaces, right? Give me liberty or give me death. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Do people still watch Braveheart? Is that still a thing? Okay. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
some other God who lives beyond the river or the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, some God who claims to control the harvest or the rain or some such other thing, or the God who delivered you from Egypt and has brought you to the promised land. As for my family, Joshua says, we're going to serve God. How about you? And like I said, for Joshua, this is not a rhetorical question. He's actually inviting a response. But I remain convinced not all is as it seems. While this is not a rhetorical question, it is, I think, kind of a trick question. Because what we're going to see is that Joshua is setting the people up. He's trapping them. The point of this sermon, at least this part of it, isn't actually to get the people to exercise their freedom to make a good choice. The point of this part of the sermon is to show the people that they're a lot less free than they think they are. That the solution to their fundamental problem is not a good choice or a kept promise on their part, but the gracious activity of a faithful God who, as we who live on this side of the cross know, a faithful God who will send his own son to save people who have made bad choices and who have failed to live up to their promises. So Joshua has gathered the people together and tells them to put away all their other gods. And he says those famous lines that I bet are on pieces of art in some of your houses. Choose this day whom you will serve, and as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We have an as for me and my household piece of art in our home. We don't, though, often read much further into the story. The next part, perhaps, goes as expected. The people promise to be faithful. Far be it from us, they say, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us all along the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed, And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, they promise we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. So far, so good. And as you'll note, that's where our reading ends. That's where the assigned lectionary reading ends. The people are seemingly given a free choice. Choose those other gods or choose the Lord. And they use their free choice wisely. Patrick Henry and William Wallace would be proud But the story is far from over. Joshua is about to spring his trap. And what he has to say would make Patrick Henry and William Wallace foam at the mouth. Because after the people say, therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. The story changes course in a way that nobody gathered there at Shechem could have expected. The people choose to serve the Lord. And then Joshua tells them that they can't. Listen to what he says to them. This is Joshua 24, beginning in verse 19. You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God who will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. 
If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. That part doesn't get printed on the inspirational art that we hang in our homes. It wouldn't look very good in needlepoint. The Lord will consume you. Academy Award winning movies don't get made about that. The people gathered in Joshua's congregation seemed to make the right decision. We will follow God. And Joshua smacks them down. You don't have the ability to do it, he says. You're going to fail to keep your promises. You're going to go back to those other gods. And Almighty God, the one true God, is going to consume you. Again, might be off-putting to have framed in your foyer. But the people, in their defense, aren't willing to give up just yet. No, we will serve the Lord, they cry. They double down. And now Joshua closes the trap that he's sprung. You are witnesses against yourselves, he tells the people, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. You are witnesses against yourselves. And they agree. They say we are witnesses. Joshua gives the people a seemingly simple choice. Choose the one true God or choose the false gods of their ancestors. But when the people seem to make the right choice, he reveals that it was never that simple at all. You people, he seems to be saying, are actually a lot less free to make choices than you think you are. You can say you're going to do something, but it's quite a different thing when it comes time to actually do it. Does that sound familiar to anybody gathered here this morning? You're going to fail, Joshua says to them. And when you fail to do what you have promised, remember this moment. You will be witnesses against yourselves when you are shown to be unfaithful. There's a scene in the okay but not great 2011 film, The Adjustment Bureau, in which Matt Damon is playing a young, on-the-rise politician, and he's giving a speech to his supporters. He talks about how people see him as authentic, and the audience rousingly applauds. He quickly quiets the crowd, though, by saying, but here's the problem. This isn't even my tie. Now, I'm wearing vestments, so I can't do the tie thing, but you can imagine. He says, this isn't even my tie, and then he gives one of the most eloquent descriptions of the limits of human freedom that you'll ever see in a Hollywood movie. Here's what he says. This tie was selected for me by a group of specialists in Tenafly, New Jersey, who chose it over 56 other ties we tested. In fact, our data suggests that I have to stick to either a tie that is red or a tie that is blue. A yellow tie made it look as if I was taking my situation lightly. A silver tie meant that I'd forgotten my roots. My shoes. You know, shiny shoes we associate with high-priced lawyers and bankers. If you want to get a working man's vote, you've got to scuff up your shoes a little bit. But you can't scuff them up so much that you alienate the lawyers and the bankers because you need them to pay for the specialists back in Tenafly. So what is the proper scuffing amount? 
Do you know, he says, that we actually paid a consultant to tell us that this, and he holds up his shoe, is the perfect amount of scuffing. We all do this. Do you see it? When you really get down to it, we're not even as free as we think we are when we stand in front of our closets to choose our outfit for the day. Matt Taman is thinking about voters, but we're thinking about who we're going to see that day, what our job requires of us, who we need to impress, what we're going to do. We are acted upon by all kinds of forces outside our control. We're a lot less free than we think we are. Now, the rest of this movie is similarly about how not free people really are. Matt Damon is oppressed by the Adjustment Bureau, this shadowy organization where everyone wears fedoras for some reason. In order to keep him on plan, there's a mysterious director who has a plan for everyone's life, and the Bureau's job is to keep everyone on their plan. But because Matt Damon falls in love with a woman he's not supposed to, these agents continually interrupt his life, trying to get him back onto the path which he's supposed to be following. Matt Damon, like the congregation gathered at Shechem, is less free than he thinks. Now, because this is Hollywood, Damon overcomes the Bureau in the end and is able to exercise his freedom. Right? Patrick Henry and William Wallace would love the Adjustment Bureau. But defeating the director's plan is not what happens in real life. The actual truth is that Joshua is right. We are much less free than we think we are. Biblically faithful theologians, when referring to the human will, most commonly refer to it as bound, not free, just tied up and pulled in all sorts of different directions. Now, we don't like that. We identify so closely with William Wallace and Patrick Henry that we can't help but hear this as terrible news. Wait a minute, we say. You mean I'm not in control? I'm not controlling my spiritual life. I'm not as free as I think I am. Where is the good news in that? Well, my contention to you this morning is counterintuitive. That we are less free than we think feels like bad news. But it ends up being the thing that actually makes our salvation possible. Stay with me just a moment longer and I'll tell you what I mean. So Joshua, with the gathered nation of Israel before him, tells the people that they can't serve the Lord. How can he say that? Well, it's because he knows them. He's been with them. He knows who they are. He knows that they are human beings, that they are sinners. He knows that they will use their freedom to rebel against God every time. The people have agency, but they always use it to sin. In other words, they're bound to do it. Joshua has spent his entire life witnessing this. He knows the story of God and his people. Rebellion by the people met with faithfulness from God. Promise breaking by the people met with promise keeping 
from God, sinning by the people, redemption from God. These people aren't actually free. They're in bondage, slaves to their sin, just like they were in bondage in Egypt. And it makes all the sense in the world then for Joshua to tell the people something like, be careful about tying yourself to an almighty God who expects perfect righteousness from his people. You can't survive that. You're too sinful. But there is good news for sinful people. Hearing Joshua's words of caution, my mind skips to our gospel reading. We're still in John chapter 6, in which the disciples react to Jesus' teaching about eating his body and drinking his blood and thereby abiding in him. This teaching is difficult, they say. Who can accept it? You can imagine a similar sentiment bubbling through the crowd gathered before Joshua. This teaching is difficult. And you know what? You can probably feel it in yourself. Anytime you come into contact with a teaching about our almighty God, a holy God, transcendent and yet imminent, three in one, a God who created you in his image, a God who told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of a particular tree, a God who sent a flood to cover the whole earth, a God who becomes incarnate as a man, a God incarnate who said that he came to divide fathers from sons and daughters from mothers, a God incarnate who demands that you give up your life to follow him, a God incarnate who was crucified and raised on the third day. This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And many of the disciples we read turned away at this point. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where are we supposed to go? Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. And what are those words? What are the words that can make the troubling fact that we're less free than we think we are into good news instead of bad? They are Jesus's words. You did not choose me, but I chose you. John chapter 15 and verse 16. They are words about Jesus. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the perfect sacrificial offering for our sins. First John four, verse 10. We have agency, we humans, to be sure. But to the extent that we use it in our humanity, we use it to sin. We use it to serve other gods, gods of our own creation. We enslave ourselves to them. 
We are in bondage. We are not free. But praise God, there is good news for the unfree. You don't have to summon up your freedom and power to escape your bondage. You have a God who comes to you where you are enslaved, liberates you, and then welcomes you into his joyful service. You were bound to sin, but now you are bound to Christ. St. Paul rejoices and calls himself a slave to Jesus Christ. This is good news. Jesus is good news for a bound sinner. He is your true freedom. You did not choose him, but he chose you and gave himself for you a propitiation for your sins. In your humanity, you are a promise breaker, just like the people in the crowd at Shechem. You, too, will fail to uphold your end of the bargain. But thank God you have a savior, Christ Jesus, who comes to the bound, to the prisoner, to the faithless, to you. He is freedom. He is release. He is redemption. He is faithful to the end. And in his name and by his blood, you are saved. Thanks be to God. Amen.